Our Old Testament lesson today is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35, and I should say that I absolutely expect that you all will be just as engaged and interactive as our children were. (laughs) Hear now these words from the prophet. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless shall sing for joy. Waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. The redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As Corinne mentioned last week, we heard quite a bit from and about John the Baptist. And as you have already heard in that reading, he is still very much present with us this Sunday. Now, I hope this came through clearly enough last week. John is an extraordinary prophet. You've heard me say this before, that sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that prophets can see into the future. That's not quite right. Prophets do have excellent eyesight, but it's the present moment that they are able to see better than anyone else. John knows what the people around him and what he himself most needs to hear. Words of lament that ring out with heartbreaking honesty Are you the one who was to come? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Is it really you? Or are we supposed to wait even longer still? Jesus always knows the right way to respond. And so to the mighty prophet, he responds borrowing the words of another prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah is the quintessential Advent prophet, I like to think of him as the great interrupter. If you have read the book of Isaiah straight through, you know it is rough going. For the vast majority of it, it is bleak. Over and over again, the prophet laments the present day and warns of what is to come 
if nothing changes. But then, here and there, almost, it seems, just when Isaiah himself and all who read his words are reaching the breaking point, he interrupts himself to tell us of the good things that are coming. He interrupts the gloom and doom he sees in the present moment to tell us how God is going to interrupt that. Because that's a good way of thinking about Advent and about the Incarnation as a whole, actually. If John the Baptist is the great interrupter, Advent is the great interruption. It's the interruption of the status quo and the interruption of fear. It's the interruption of darkness and dismay and distress, of loneliness and longing, and it interrupts all of that with light and salvation, with restoration and healing on the wing. Isaiah talks of the desert being interrupted by blossoms. As I discussed with our children, the desert is a dry and desolate place. That's the way scripture describes it. It's a part of the earth that you travel through with caution and preparation and provision. It's a place you don't actually want to stay. You endure it on the way to better things. But sometimes, seemingly out of nowhere, interrupting the infinite grains of sand, blossoms appear and water bursts forth. It's an interruption of the very holiest kind because it is life, and it is interrupting the place where there had been no life. It is God making a way where there had been no way. So, of course, Jesus reaches for those words from the prophet Isaiah to comfort the prophet John. Because John is in prison, things have not gone the way he hoped. Good news seems very far away. It seems as if there is absolutely no way forward, and he is afraid, I suspect, that he has been wrong about everything. I wonder if you have ever felt that way. And so Jesus chooses to send John those words of holy interruption. Words originally said to those to others who were of a fearful heart. Do not be afraid, Isaiah says, for here is your God who is coming to you. The key to his entire prophecy is that restoration is coming. Isaiah talks in the future tense. He offers us words of promise. But Jesus talks about it in the present tense. He is offering words of fulfillment. The blind, they are seeing again. The lame, they are walking again. The lepers, their skin is clean again. And the dead, they are being raised up again. By the grace of God, through the person of Jesus Christ, everything broken, everything battered, everything left wanting is absolutely interrupted. Because this is what happens when Jesus comes into the world. He interrupts everything. 
And a small detail not to be overlooked, when Jesus sends that message to John, he says to his messengers, tell John what you are seeing. In other words, tell him what you are witnessing yourselves. Don't just repeat what I have said. Tell him what you see happening. A number of years ago, I heard a lecture by a theoretical physicist. There is a part of that lecture that I will never forget, and it's not just because it's the only part I understood. It is, but that's not why I remember it. She said that it has been proven time and time again that we are quite bad at noticing things if we aren't actively looking for them. She said, even in laboratories, even among scientists, with decades of training, we are much less likely to notice something unexpected. Researchers who are trained to look for certain markers or certain reactions, she said, in order to discover the unexpected, those same researchers, they actually have to give themselves a talk in advance so that they have the mindset of, I'm going to find something that surprises me. Because otherwise, the chances of them finding something, whether it might be a new insight, a new disease, or even a new cure, whatever it might be, the chances of them finding it, even if it's there, drop noticeably. These are her exact words, we almost never find what we aren't looking for. So I wonder what you are looking for this Advent. Arthur Brooks wrote a column in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. I'm still mulling it over. He cites a 1998 article in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that says negative information weighs more heavily on our brains. In other words, negative stimuli get our attention much more so than positive. Now, on the one hand, of course, this is good news. It's the basis of evolution. It's how we survive. But on the other hand, Brooks says, these days, we as Americans... And he points out that this is true across the political spectrum. We as Americans are so fixated on the bad... We are allowing it to demobilize us and even begin to destroy us. He says that when we actively search for signs of hope, we are moved toward action because seeing something hopeful makes us want to replicate hope. When we allow ourselves only to notice the bad, we're moved towards lament, and that becomes the basis of our entire worldview. In other words, like perpetuates like. If you look for signs of life, you are going to find them. Or to borrow the words from Isaiah, if you look for blossoms in the desert, you will notice they are there. Now he goes on to say it's not that bad things still aren't happening. They are But when we allow that to dominate our perception, it takes over. 
And he argues that it actually begins to change our vision and the way we look at the world and everything and everyone in it. He says the risk is that we become people who actively assume the worst and we don't even realize it's happening. We almost always find what we're looking for. So again, what are you looking for this Advent? I'd like to tell you a bit about Huang Young Fu. If you aren't familiar with him, his picture is on the cover of our bulletin today. He was born in China, and in 1937, at the age of only 15 years old, he left home to fight. He later fought in World War II, and after all of that, he fought for the Nationalist Party against the Communist government. When the Nationalists lost in 1949, he and two million others, they fled to Taiwan, where they were housed in makeshift villages that were hastily put together for members of the military and their families. Huang and others then fought on Taiwan's behalf, and after being shot twice and wounded in battle, he retired in 1978 with a gold medal for defending Taiwan. But a little over 10 years ago, at the age of 86, Huang Yongfu found himself in yet another fight. The Taiwanese government was threatening to tear his home down. The villages were never meant to be permanent, but those who lived there, the situation never improved enough for them to return to their original homes. The villages fell into further disrepair, and the government began a fairly aggressive campaign to demolish all of the remaining settlements and use that real estate to build high-rise condos. So by the time Huang was becoming aware of this, only 30 of the original 879 settlements remained, but his was one of them. He said, when I came here, my village had 1,200 households, and we'd all sit around and talk like one big family, but then everyone moved away or passed away, and I became lonely. Nevertheless, he remained in his village until he was quite literally the only resident left. And so by 2008, developers had taken possession of all but 11 of his village's buildings. They wanted to knock it all down, he said, but I did not want to move. This is the only home I have ever known as an adult. He received a letter ordering him to vacate. But when Huang tells his story, This is the point at which a smile begins to spread across his face. He says, I didn't want to move, so I started painting. He painted a single bird on his bedroom wall that first day. The next morning, he painted again, and he has continued ever since. Every morning at 4 a.m., Huang Yangfu turns on a single light and carries a handful of paint tins to the street outside. While the city around him sleeps, he crouches on a stool for hours and quietly decorates the cement walls, all of the pavement, and even the window frames 
with an explosion of murals in every imaginable color. Tigers leap from the walls, whiskered kittens hide in alleyways, and a parade of pandas, peacocks, and people peek out from the doorways. If you look closely enough, you will see dancing samurais and floating astronauts. Two years after he began his painting, the Taiwanese government puzzled over how to respond to this uncooperative resident. But around the same time, a student from a nearby university happened through Huang's village. He learned of his battle to hold back the bulldozers, brushstroke by brushstroke. The student took pictures and began a fundraising campaign to purchase as much paint as possible. And that led to a petition protesting the demolition. So by October of that same year, the remaining 11 buildings, streets, and surrounded areas were granted protective status, and they were preserved as a public park. Through all of this, though, Huang just kept painting. Every surface in his settlement is filled with bright, vibrant images and life-giving color. From the streets to the rooftops, imaginative, bubbly creations have taken over. The world has begun calling his home Rainbow Village, and they have called Huang Grandpa Rainbow. Now these days, more than one and a quarter million people visit Rainbow Village each year. As long as he was able, Grandpa Rainbow would visit with guests each day, but his health took a recent turn, and he spends a fair amount of time in the hospital now. But he has managed to find beauty even there. During a bout of pneumonia, he fell in love with one of his nurses. They were married soon after, and Rainbow Village's population doubled. Grandma Rainbow now helps contribute to the whimsical world. The visitors who wish can find their door by looking for the illustration of a smiling soldier holding a paintbrush. He says, there are so many things I can't do anymore, but I can still paint. I can still look at something old and broken down, something forgotten and left behind, and I can see something beautiful. What are you looking for this Advent? The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And the ransomed of the Lord will return with singing. Joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will all flee away. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.